Well, good morning. Hopefully you still have your copy of God's Word. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Um, there's a difficulty with today's sermon, and the difficulty is this, is that um, I don't know if I've ever really walked through from the pulpit like how I do this. Okay, so when we're closing in on the end of a series... I usually take a couple of weeks and the elders are usually pretty kind. If you notice that whenever I end a series, usually even if I'm here, somebody else preaches for like a week and that's to help me because I map out whatever we're doing next way ahead of time. And so I mapped out the 70 whatever sermons through Luke. And so then you start studying those blocks that you've mapped out so that that's what you study for each week. And so Uh, On studying this one for this week, I came to the realization far too late in the game that this probably ought to be two, maybe three sermons. But it's just one. And so I will try and promise to not preach all two or three of them today at the same time. Um, There's a lot happening here in this interaction between John and Jesus while John is in prison, and then Jesus' response to the crowd because of the question that John asks him. Um, And so I want to start with the first part in verses 18 through 20. And it's something that's very dear to me personally, um, and I'm sure that it will be to many of you as well. And I want to talk briefly about John's doubt. In verses 18 through 20... John's disciples had gone to him wherever he was under arrest and they received word from him and he he asked them to go ask Jesus. Are you the expected one or should we be looking for someone else? Now, this passage is. And it should be incredibly encouraging to us. Here's why. I want you to consider for just a moment what we know about the person we dub John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Not something that can be said of very many people. But we have testimony in the scripture that this is true of him. He was filled with the spirit from his mother's womb. He was set apart on announcement by the angelic being and by the filling of the spirit from his mother's womb to be what was known as the forerunner, the one to come in advance and prepare the way for the Messiah. Jesus affirms this even in this passage afterwards, that that's who John actually was. When Mary came to visit Elizabeth, John leapt for joy in his mother's womb at the appearance of Jesus's mother while Jesus was still in her womb. There was a pre-birth acknowledgement of messianic presence. He was the one that God allowed to baptize Jesus to usher in the start of his public ministry. Thus hearing the voice from heaven and seeing the dove descend down on him, declaring this is my beloved son. Only a few people were able to experience that. John was one of them. John, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, acknowledged that Jesus was the one to come. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I am not unworthy. I am unworthy to bend down, to stoop down and untie his sandals. This is 
John speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about Jesus in the flesh. And even with all of that, he doubts. He's not sure if Jesus is who he says he is. He doubts. Now, I will just, I'm going to say some things that are pretty obvious, but we'll just go ahead and walk through them anyway so that we can all be on the same uh, Captain Obvious page. I was not filled with the Holy Spirit from my mother's womb. Anyone who knew me shortly after I arrived here from my mother's womb will be able to confirm this fact. My mother, most of all. I'm certainly not set apart to be the forerunner of the fleshly Messiah. Somebody already did that and happened a couple thousand years ago. I did not get to experience the presence of Jesus while in my mother's womb, nor did I leap for joy at such an occurrence. I did not get to baptize Jesus. I did not get to see him in the flesh. I did not get to declare out loud that he is the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. Nor did I get to hear the voice of God from heaven declare that Jesus was his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. I didn't get to do any of that stuff. And yet the person who got to do all of that had his doubts about Jesus. There must be room in the Christian experience for doubt and uncertainty. There must be. The great cry of the New Testament, particularly during the ministry of Jesus himself, is Lord, help my unbelief. Friends, this is a remarkable and incredible thing that we are calling people to believe in. That God has come in the flesh and has taken on himself in fleshly form the sins of his people. And that he has died a real genuine human death yet through his own power as divinity has risen from the dead and overthrown the judgment of God against sin and now offers to all those who come by faith and repentance life that can only be found in him. The New Testament itself declares this message to be folly. To be as foolishness to those who hear it. To those who are perishing, it is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. And friends, this is the message that we declare to the world. This is the message that we attempt to model our whole lives around. This is the message that we attempt to live life on. This is where we try to find our hope and our joy and our peace. And even the person who should have known it best wasn't too sure. There must be room in the Christian experience for doubt and uncertainty. There has to be. You say, but Philip, the scripture says to not doubt. Yeah, you're right. It does. It also says, don't fear. Yeah, it says that too. And it says, don't be anxious. You're right. Yes. Keep, keep the quotes coming. Yeah, I know that they're there. Don't doubt and don't fear and don't be anxious. And do you know why it says that so many times over and over and over again? Because we are going to doubt and fear and be anxious. 
Friend, it doesn't make you less than when you doubt. It doesn't make you less than when you fear. It doesn't make you less than when you're anxious. It makes you human and there's a remedy for it. And it's Jesus Christ and the word of God. I want you to consider the company that you will be in if you doubt. We can start with Moses. God himself comes to Moses in the form of a burning bush that will not be burned up. And he speaks to him and he says, I've seen the the pain of my people and I'm going to send you back to the land of Egypt from which you fled, which he fled as a fugitive for murder, by the way. And I want to send you back to that place among the slaves that you didn't have to grow up with because you were able to grow up in Pharaoh's house. Now a fugitive from justice for murdering a man. And I want you to go back there and I want you to go into the presence of the Pharaoh himself and tell him to let my people go. And Moses essentially says, I don't know about this. And then once all of the things happen, can you imagine the things that Moses saw with his own eyes? The ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. And then they get out into the wilderness and these people are in rebellion against God and they're murmuring and they're complaining and they're making false idols. And basically Moses throws his hands up to heaven and says, God, why in the world did you have me lead these people out here? Just to die? His life was marked by uncertainty and doubt. We could talk about Job. (laughs) There's a lot of uncertainty and doubt in Job, a lot. We could talk about Abraham. Can a man my age really? Not to mention his wife, Sarah. We could talk about David. How many Psalms did David write? Lord God, will you not judge the wicked? Will the wicked continue to be able to live and the righteous be the ones who fall by the wayside? And he saw the injustice of the world and he had doubt. He had uncertainty. Now, of course, most of those psalms end with him turning an about face and going 180 and saying, but I'll trust you. We could talk about Gideon. We can walk through so many people in the scripture, the quote unquote superheroes of the faith. And do you know what they're marked by that we rarely talk about publicly from the pulpit? Doubt and fear and uncertainty. We'd be in really, really good company. I would actually contend, and sometimes it gets me into trouble and that's fine. I'd be delighted to have lunch with you this week to talk about it. The Lord Jesus Christ himself in human form, having laid aside his divine privilege in the garden of Gethsemane, alone with his disciples asleep, said, Lord, if there is another way. Let this cup pass from me. In other words, you know, the real conversation going on there between the second and the first person of the Trinity. Are you sure we have to do it like this? So, Philip, it's sinful to doubt. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's sinful to be succumbed to doubt, to be overwhelmed with doubt, to give in to doubt and fear as it becomes your idol. But friend, I tell you the truth. When you face this life and you face it through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to face it with an uncertainty as to what is going to come. We are constantly standing on the precipice of a platform that seems empty with nowhere to stand and nowhere to step. God beckoning us to move forward. And by faith, 
which faith is what? A certainty of things not seen. By faith, we look and we see the chasm and we see the empty space beneath our feet and we hear the voice of God saying, I need you to keep walking. And we go, okay. And we step. Where's the sin? The sin is not being uncertain that there's nothing to stand on. The sin is standing on the edge of the cliff where you know God has told you step forward and you go, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to figure out a better way to do this than the one you've just told me. That's where the sin comes in. Friends, there's plenty of times in our life where God calls us to just step forward in faith, unsure about what's going to happen, but to just trust in the sovereign providence and the goodness and the kindness of God. He hasn't laid out for us everything and what it's all going to look like and how it's all going to turn out. Friends, there has to be room for a theology of doubt in the Christian experience. There has to be room for uncertainty. There has to be room for us having a hard time processing the things of God. And friends, I would contend with you this morning that one of the greatest downfalls of evangelicalism in the Western church in the United States of America in particular, hasn't been socio-political rise of immorality. That's always been. Look, in every culture, you'll see it. It's not the advancement of other religious ideologies. Other religious ideologies have always been there. There's always been competing worldviews to Christianity. Always. I would say that it's not even the advancement of false teaching. We have in the book of Acts and in the letters of Paul combating false teaching immediately after the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's always been there. But do you know what has changed in the past 80 to 100 years? That if you look deeply into the past and you study closely the great Christian people who have gone before us, do you know what has changed? There has become an arrogance in American evangelicalism of absolute certainty about all things divine with no room for doubt. And that those great dark nights of the soul where people really wrestled through, is God great and is God good and will he come through and is he kind and the deep moving pain in the heart of not being sure about the faith that you are standing on and pleading and begging humbly with God to help our unbelief has almost vanished in modern evangelicalism. And I'm sorry, friends, but when someone comes into the faith and mature and brand new, a newborn babe, They need to be able to pull themselves up metaphorically onto the edge of the table on those uncertain legs of theirs that they're trying to grow on. And they need to be able to look around and go, I'm not real sure if I should let go and try to walk or not. And they should be surrounded by a community of people who will meet them graciously where they are with all the compassion that they can muster and tell them it's really okay that you're wobbling and about to fall over. We will stay here and love you and walk alongside of you until you can make your way through these same doubts because we walk through these same doubts at some point in our life too. What we don't need is a community of people going, well, you less than. How dare you doubt the great glorious God? Come back when you've got it all together. We don't need that. But you know what that? That's what we have mostly in evangelicalism. 
We need people where it's okay to be like John was. You've never had the advantages John had and neither have I. And yet when he was facing death in prison for the ministry that he was doing, he sent his disciples to Jesus and said, hey, are you really the guy? Or have I wasted my life? This is the question that John's asking. If we'll boil the whole conversation down, that's the question that John is asking. Are you really the guy or have I, am I about to die for nothing? Have I wasted my life? And we need the Jesus response. Do you know what Jesus did not say to John that he did say to his own disciples sometime? He didn't say, oh, ye of little faith. He didn't say that to John. Notice that there are plenty of times he said that to his apostles. He did not say that to John. He said, you go back and you tell John. The blind receive their sight. And the deaf receive their hearing. The dead are raised and the demons are cast out. And the gospel is preached to the poor. You go back and tell him that everything that was supposed to happen is happening. You go and encourage him in his faith. We need that in evangelicalism. We need that in our local churches. We need the people who've come out of paganism and atheism and Islam and homosexuality and transgenderism and broken homes and all of the all of the caving in that is the effects of sin in our world. And we need them when they come to Christ and they are converted and they come into our churches and they don't know which way is up and which way is down and which way is left and which way is right. And they need to be taught and they need to be educated and they need to gain understanding and they need people to love them and walk alongside them. They need people to look at them and say, you know what, I've had doubts, too. Let me help you walk through this. It's okay to not be sure. And friends, if I as a natural skeptic and borderline cynic were to expose to you the conversations that I've had with those closest to me over the years about the things that I've been skeptical of and the things that I have doubted about my faith, you would marvel that I can still stand up and be a preacher and preach the word of God each week. Because there's just a lot of things in my life that I've just not been sure about. There have literally been weeks. I've been doing this for almost 20 years now. There have literally been weeks in my life where I've been studying a passage of Scripture. And I say, I actually have to teach this to people this week. And I'm not sure I believe it or not. And yet it's what's next. And I have to stand up and say, thus says the Lord. And I hope he tells to me, thus says the Lord to me, before I have to say, thus says the Lord to them. I hope we get it all straight before I actually have to say it. We need room for doubting in the Christian faith. We need compassion towards those who struggle. We need a theology of doubt. All right, I will stop preaching that sermon now that I'm 20 minutes in and move on to the other two sermons that we needed to get to. And so Jesus' response to this doubt that John has is that he affirms his own ministry and the work that John did. Jesus was demonstrating power over the physical and spiritual world. 
He announces these prophecies, mostly taken from Isaiah, are being fulfilled, as I mentioned a second ago. He says, go back and tell John, sight's given to the blind, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Go back and tell John that all of the prophetic word of God is being fulfilled in the ministry that I am doing right now publicly, so that you will know that I am the one. And when those guys leave... And it's just the crowd left. And there's two different groups of people in the crowd. There's the religious leaders who had denied the work of John and did not receive his baptism. And then there's the people at large who had received the the word that John was preaching and had come and received baptism from him. And these people are in the crowd. And he turns to the crowd and he says, who did you come to see? Referencing John when John was doing his public ministry. He said, who did you come to see? He says, I'll tell you who you didn't come to see. You did not come to see a soft man. Go ahead and tell you straight, if John came in here right now, he would make most everybody in this room very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. He was a hard man. He was a wilderness man. He had these crazy clothes and he had this crazy diet. You know, the original keto, you know, eat bugs and such. Which meant he probably was a pretty fit guy because he walked around everywhere he went eating insects. He was a hard man. And he preached a hard message. Just go back and read through the stuff that he said out loud publicly to people. The, the message that John preached. It was brutal. And when the religious leaders would show up on the scene, he would call them out to their faces in front of the crowds that they had authority over. He said, you brood of vipers. Who warned you? Who told you to come and flee from the impending judgment? Jesus said, did you come to see a prophet? He says, but I tell you, you came to see more than a prophet. He is the one who fulfills this testimony. He is the one who fulfills this announcement. I'm sending my messenger before you. And I want you to see something in verse 28. Jesus says to him, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Now, before we get to the second half of the sentence, I want to pause there. What just happened? John from prison just sent two disciples to Jesus to find out if he really was the Messiah or not. He's having a personal crisis of belief about what his whole life was about. And in the midst of his lowest possible point, he's in jail, doubting the value of his whole life. Jesus says, I want to tell you the truth. There's never been a person born among women greater than that man that just asked that question. Friend, if you're in a place like that, a really low, dark place like that, find comfort in Jesus's response to John. He could have totally thrown John on the bus, but he didn't. He did not do that. And you say, well, Philip, how can I find comfort in that? That's his words to John. You can find comfort in it by the second half of Jesus' sentence. Look at what he says. He says, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, greater than John is. Friends, John is still under that dispensation where the, 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 the inauguration of the new covenant hasn't reached its fulfillment yet. Christ has not yet been crucified. Christ has not yet been risen from the dead. Christ has not yet ascended to the right hand of the Father in a glorified state. We are still kind of in this weird mixing of worlds. The looking ahead and the looking behind. The, the Son of God is present among them. And so John was a preacher of the old covenant. 
He was a prophet. He was the last great prophet of the old covenant. Announcing the one who was to come. He's the forerunner. He's clearing out the last couple of stones that are in the way, in the pathway for the Messiah to be ushered into the world and the inauguration of the kingdom to take place. And he says, I tell you the truth. Anybody who is an actual citizen of the kingdom of God in the new covenant, who's drinking the new wine from the new wineskins. Going back to those parables that Jesus was talking about. Anyone who's eating this bread from heaven. Anyone who's entered through the gate, anyone who's a sheep following the shepherd, anyone who's a a vine who's attached to the, uh, 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 the branches, anyone who's been woven in. These people, even if they find themselves least of all in this kingdom, they're greater than John is. Friends, I find that remarkably encouraging. That my position in Jesus Christ has me viewed as greater than the prophet John the Baptist. Not because of anything I've done or anything I've accomplished or anything that I've been striving to do, but simply because the Father in His grace and for His glory through the Spirit has placed me in the Son. And I am now deemed even greater than the greatest prophet that Jesus said was ever born, John the Baptist. Simply because I am part of the new covenant kingdom. That's incredible. Which means all of my doubt and all of my uncertainty and all of my wrestlings and all of my wranglings and all of my confusion and all of my failings and all of my shortcomings. Because of the work of Jesus, I am still viewed with immense value by the Father. How much value? Jesus says it in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. God loved them with the same love with which you love me. It's incredible. It's incredible. Friends, this isn't that John wasn't in the kingdom. It's that there are certain spiritual advantages Of being a part of the new covenant kingdom. Eventually Jesus pulls into that kingdom. All of those saints from that old viewpoint. But their faith was not made sight. Until the great day of the resurrection of the Lord. Just wasn't. And they are longing just like we are. For that future resurrection to come. And then Jesus. In his special way. Turns his attention to the audience. And he preaches a doozy of a sermon in about 35 words or so. I mean, it's remarkable. He turns his attention. And notice the in-between commentary that Luke gives in verse 29. He says, when the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice because they'd been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. One embraced the announcement of the kingdom. The other did not embrace the announcement of the kingdom. One had come to the Lord in repentance. The other did not come to the Lord in repentance. Now, for those of you who part of your career is to be a tax collector or a lawyer, this is not my words. These are the words of the Lord Jesus I'm not saying anything against your chosen profession. Surely you can be in the kingdom if you too come and repent and believe. So just want to throw that out there. So 
He turns and he asks this question. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation and what are they like? And then he gives this parable. They're like children who sit in the marketplace and they call out to one another and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance and we sang a dirge and you did not weep. In other words, Jesus is saying they're like fickle, silly children, dissatisfied and discontent with all of their circumstances. So what what do you what do you mean by that? What do you what do you see that he gives the explanation? He says for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. Hey, this guy who came fasting. This guy who came with all these restrictions on himself. He had a Nazarite vow. He didn't even touch the grapes themselves, nor drink of their fruit, nor drink of the wine that came from them. He restricted his life. He was very aesthetic. He was very righteous in his moral doings. And when he came to you and he preached the kingdom of God with the utmost outward form of morality that he could have, having taken the Nazarite vow, having had it placed on him since birth before he came out of the womb and having kept it all of this time. You look at a man like that and you say he has a demon. So his restrictive religious lifestyle, you couldn't find satisfaction in that. You were discontented with that. You were discontented with his expression of the kingdom. And so the son of man comes and he's eating and he's drinking. And you say, behold, this gluttonous drunkard, this friend of tax collectors and sinners. How discontent, how dissatisfied can you be with any expression of the kingdom of God that that the Lord decides to supply to you? You have this man who's restricted in his actions and you say he's demonic. You have this man who's free in his actions and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. You cannot be satisfied with anything that God gives you. That's what Jesus is saying to them. And he's using this as an example of these children in the marketplace. We played a flute, a happy song, and you didn't dance. That's Jesus coming, eating and drinking. We played a dirge for you and you didn't weep. That's the morning song. That's the song of John the Baptist. We've played the songs of the kingdom for you, but you didn't dance or weep for any of them. What's it going to take for you to be satisfied with the kingdom of God? That's the question that Jesus is asking these people. Friends, this is powerful powerful thing that Jesus is saying to them. He said, John came and preached repentance and you wouldn't be baptized by him. The son of man comes preaching repentance, but in a freer, different way. And you won't embrace his teachings either. This one drinks too much. That one, not enough. Really? Basically, that's Jesus's conclusion. He looks at the crowd and he goes, really? And then he closes it with this. He says, yet wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. Remember these religious leaders. These teachers of the law. Would have been very, very well versed. In the principles of the Old Testament. And when Jesus makes reference to wisdom here being vindicated by her children, immediately their minds would have gone to the Proverbs. Wisdom standing out in the corridor, calling in the street, saying, come over here, you foolish men, or you will be destroyed if you stay there. All of that metaphor would have run through their minds. 
They would have known exactly what he was talking about. And they would have also understood that the only way that you can become a child of wisdom is to be born spiritually into wisdom. And what is the beginning of wisdom? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. This, I'm telling you, this is what would have flooded their minds. They would not have missed this little statement. We read it and a lot of times we miss it. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. We go, oh, well, okay, that's kind of a poetry thing. I don't really know what Jesus is talking about there. Friends, this would have flooded those guys' minds immediately. He's saying to me that as righteous and as religious and as spiritual as I am, I'm dissatisfied with the way that God's establishing his kingdom and I have not yet learned to fear the Lord and I'm not a child of wisdom. That's what they would have heard Jesus say. He turned to the great religious leaders, the great theologians, the great pastors and teachers and the defenders of the law. And he looked at all of them and said, you have no idea what it means to fear God. And as such, you are not in his kingdom. That's what he just said to them. That's what he just said to them. He said, every time God tries to display one aspect of his kingdom for your enjoyment and for your pleasure and for your and for your delight in the things of God that you might be remade and reflect his glory properly. You dismiss it and disregard it and reject it. And because of that, you've trusted in yourself and not in the Lord. And you are on the outside looking in. He said, I sent you all the prophets. And I sent you Moses and the law and the temple and the writings and the kingdom and the nation. And then I sent you John and now I've come to you myself and I've displayed to you everything that you need to know and see. And yet you still turn your back on it. And yet these tax collectors and these prostitutes and these sinners have joyfully, even with all their doubts and uncertainty, embraced the repentance and the faith and have come into the kingdom. They are the least of these, yet they're greater than you because you're still clinging to that old thing that will not save you. And friends, this is a remarkable thing. And friend, I, I turn all of our attention to it. What should we glean from this? Friend, it's very simple. No matter the doubt and uncertainty that you have about this glorious message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Because, friend, I want to tell you from my own personal experience, both as a human being broken and marred and ruined in sin. Who has spent countless hours across the table from other broken, ruined sinners, having them share about their doubts and their uncertainties. I will go ahead and share with you the greatest common theme of doubt and uncertainty that I've ever seen ever seen and it's this you have no idea what it is that I have done and I am not sure I am not certain that God truly can love me and forgive me and make me his own I feel I have gone too far 
And I have done too much for God's grace to reach me. And friend, I want to tell you, as someone who's been there and still lives there from time to time, There is no place too far, no sin too great, no valley of darkness too deep that the light of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot come and overthrow and cleanse and pull back and set free. Your sin is not greater than the completed work of Jesus Christ. It's not say, Philip, I hear you say that, but I look out in front of myself and all I see is empty space. Friend, that's your sin. Isaiah 59, two says, but my sin has created a separation between me and my God. Where he won't see me and he won't hear me and I'm worried he won't see me and hear me, friend. He won't hear you and he won't see you because the prayers of a wicked man are abomination to God. What you do is you call out on the Lord Jesus Christ, the only righteous man, because James says the prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And do you know who prays righteously for us? The one making intercession for us at the right hand of God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, prophet and king himself. And he intercedes for us both day and night. He seated at the right hand of the Father and He extends those bloody hands out to us and He says, you cannot, but I already have. And we do not step out on the power of our own confession, but we step out on the completed work of Jesus Christ. And I don't see it and I can't experience it and I don't feel it, but I know that Christ Jesus once was dead and is now alive and He offers life to me. And every day I preach that gospel to myself and I say, I am ruined. He says, no, you're not. You are made righteous by my Son. You are my child and I invite you in trust me not yourself and I lean not on my own understanding so friend doubt away doubt the greatness and the glory of God all you want but I tell you when you step out onto the platform that is the salvation to be found in Jesus Christ you will find nothing but firm ground so firm that nothing can make you fall. Let's pray together. Father God. Thank you for the doubts that John had. Thank you for the uncertainty that such a great man with so many advantages had. What an encouragement it is to us. Father, thank you. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has come into the world as a sacrifice for sin. And that there's no sin so great. No uncertainty so mighty. There's no height so high, no depth so deep, no valley so wide that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot overcome. Father, forgive us when our uncertainty about ourselves causes us to be uncertain about you. Help 
our unbelief. And in doing so, Father, let us enjoy the benefits of the kingdom. Let our faith in the things unseen be greater to us than the things we can actually see. Remove from us doubt and fear and anxiety. And then, Father, help us to reach behind ourselves to those who are also struggling and to help them walk the path as well. Father, thank you for your grace. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand at this time as we sing.